Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, a wrestling history podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode number 99, featuring Arcadian Vanguard's own Jace Nakarado. I will be getting to my conversation with Jace in just a few minutes. Just a couple of quick things I wanted to make a note on for you. First of all, I want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Christmas is upon us just days away. The Christmas Eve and Christmas Day holiday will be happening during the week that you are listening to this show. So happy holidays to all who celebrate. And uh, you know what? If you haven't picked up your copy of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, or superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro, for the loved one in your life, what are you waiting for? It's almost here. Hurry up. Get it done. Amazon Prime overnight delivery. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Want to talk about the next book, Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon. Chapter three is completed, and we are moving on to chapter four, which will focus on the college and amateur wrestling career of one Robert James Morella, his time at Ithaca College, going all the way to the NCAA heavyweight championships, his bid for the 1960 Olympics, the Pan Am Games, the World Tour, everything that happened there, everything that led into his going into the world of professional wrestling, which we will get to in the following chapter. Just wanted to keep you abreast. Also, I want to mention something very cool. I've had some conversations, as you know, with the Morella family. I've also managed to very recently reach out to one of Gorilla's sisters, whom I am embarrassed to say I did not even realize were still with us. But Gorilla Monsoon has two living sisters of significantly younger age than he and I am attempting to interview them, and I'm hoping to have an interview with one of them, Amy Morella, who is about 16 years younger than him. I'm hoping to have that interview as part of the book. I know that will add a lot of depth and information to the story. Just wanted to keep you abreast on what's happening with the book project. I know that some of you enjoy hearing that stuff, and for those that don't, Please forgive me. We will move right along to the conversation in a moment. However, I mentioned this at the end of last week's show. I'm going to mention it here at the top of this week's. I am super, super excited. You want to know why? The reason next week. Next week is the 100th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. And my guest is indeed going to be James E. Cornette. You may have heard of him. He's kind of this up-and-coming podcaster making some waves, you know? 
Maybe some of you listened to his shows. I heard he was a manager back in the day as well, not half bad. He will be a guest. He will be the guest for the 100th episode next week. We have our interview scheduled. By the time you hear this, good Lord willing and the crick don't rise, the conversation will have already taken place and been recorded. So I'm happy to be able to share that with you for the 100th episode. Stay tuned. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Sorry, Jace, not trying to overshadow you here. Let us stay on track with episode 99 featuring Arcadian Vanguard's editor and producer, Jace Nakarado. And I will take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome a trusted and beloved member of the Arcadian Vanguard family. You know, the Jim Cornette shows are really known for their sound quality, for their superb sound quality. If you enjoy the sound quality of those shows, then you largely have this man to thank for it. He is, aside from being a longtime wrestling fan, which we'll talk about, and, and a student of wrestling history like myself, he is the editor and producer for Arcadian Vanguard and for the Jim Cornette podcasts. Jim tends to refer to him as Jay Sharknado. I, however, will show him the respect that he deserves and call him by his real name, Jace Nakarado. Jace, thank you so much for finally making your way to Shut Up and Wrestle. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I would say trusted and beloved. Trusted, yes. Beloved. Uh, you might be stretching that one a little bit, but I, I do appreciate it. And just wanted to let you know, the check is in the mail. So like, if you get anything like a little bit later today, just don't worry about uh, <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you having me here. Thank you. Well, I'll clarify that he is beloved by the members of the Arcadian Vanguard team. Correct. Uh, I can't speak for all the listeners of the Jim Cornette experience and the drive through uh, but certainly by us, by Brian, by me, by Mike, by Lou, by everybody. So thank you. It's guilt by association sometimes, but thank you. <laughs> also, I think I would have to say, would it be fair to say, I mean, it has to be that you are probably the least visible or heard member of the group, you know, because we hear Lou, uh, we hear Mike every day, his voice in the wrestling news and Brian certainly, and we don't get to hear a lot from you. Yeah, maybe for good reason, because I don't think that I have too many good things to contribute, but no. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I uh, yeah, I uh, tend to take a little bit of a background role. And, uh, you know, I everybody has a role. And, uh, you know, I, if if I was ever invited on to other shows or to have my chance, as you were giving me now, to be in front of the microphone, yeah, I'd relish it. And uh, it's just it's always great to talk to you guys and just to to talk to other people in general, fans, well-wishers, near-do-wells, like. Yeah, I just like talking to people. So thanks for having me on. My pleasure. We'll change that today. And and I actually, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here too, in addition to the fact that, you know, I don't think that, you know, you, fans and listeners get to hear enough of your opinions. I mean, certainly people that follow you on Twitter do that. But I found it to be interesting because I feel like you, and I said that I was saying this to you before, but like me, you are somebody who takes an interest in wrestling history, in wrestling territories and shows and eras and things that may have been outside your original 
fandom of wrestling, which I think so, so few wrestling fans do. And I'm not going to, you know, people can enjoy wrestling however they want to, but it's just a fact that you find very few fans who can think outside the bubble of just what their own experience is as a fan kind of growing up and, you know, nothing else exists outside that bubble. And I haven't been that way, you know, for the past 30 plus years of, of getting into so much wrestling history. And I know just from following you, especially that you're not that way either. So that was another reason why I wanted to have you on here to talk. Right. And thanks. You know, for me too, just in terms of the era that I grew up, um, I didn't really start getting into wrestling until I was, you know, around 12 to 13 years old. And I think you had mentioned that that was kind of the same age that you were with uh, when you had your interview recently with Brian Alvarez. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's late, you know, like it is a late. And to me, like I was I was a video game kid, like, you know, like I, I was, you know, N64 and Super Nintendo. That was kind of more my scene when it comes to my friends at school like that. We would mainly just talk about video games like that was kind of my you know, age six through 12 kind of medium. But, you know, to take a step back a little bit, like I said, my frame of reference is really only WWE because, you know, I started watching it when I was 12, 13. That was like 2004. So that's like the era of the world champion whose name we cannot mention anymore um, because of an unspeakable and heinous crime when he was mm -hmm. world champion in the WWE. Um, but that's how I got into wrestling. And I think that person also being Canadian, as I am a gentle, nice Canadian boy, um, <laughs> that kind of maybe fueled a little bit in terms of wanting my wrestling fandom to go up and we can go more into it, but yeah, I, I do appreciate that. And I think to me too, I'm a student of history, um, you know, um, before my, uh, glowing career in the wrestling media world, uh, with Arcadian Vanguard, I, I was a teacher, um, before the pandemic. So you know, I, I majored in history in school, and I think that history is really important. And I think it's really important to know where we come from and what we can do to change and hopefully not make the same mistakes that we did before. And it's just you have to know where your where your past starts because that's important, maybe from a respect standpoint as well, to kind of, you know, um, take solace in what came before you. So I want to say a couple of things about that. It's interesting to me because, yes, I was aware that you were younger than me. I don't know if I was aware how much younger than me you were, because I think it sounds like you're almost 20 years younger than me, I want to say, because at the time you're talking about, I was working there. I was working for WWE yep. in 2004. Uh, in fact, I'd been there already for a few years. And for me, it's the, like you said, the same age range, except it's the late 80s for me. 87 is when I really got hooked. WrestleMania three, as I've said, and I was 12 years old. And um, the funny thing is it was the same thing with comic books for me, which was my other right. great love. I didn't start, you know, I had, I had read comic books now and then I pick one up even from when I was little, but I didn't get really hardcore into collecting. Like I'm going to the newsstand every week and I'm following right. these titles and things until I was about 12 years old. And I don't know what, the connection. No, you know what? I think I was maybe 11, maybe 10 or 11. But even that is a little on the older side for most kids, at least to get started. And I, I thought it was funny because with my own son, my older son, Jack, partly because he's my son, but he, you know, I got I got him into wrestling and I got him into comics, but much younger than I was. And by the time he was 12, 
he was about sick of both of those things. Right. And I remember him being like, dad, I just, I'm just not that interested in this anymore. And, and, and I'm, and I was like, really? And you had good intentions. That's yeah, why you wanted I, to try to do, that's why you wanted to try to do it early. Yeah. But I was like, you're the age that I was when I was first getting into those things. And you're telling me you're sick of it. Wow. It's like a crushing blow, but I yeah. don't know what it was about me at that age or uh, what I was into before that. I, I couldn't even really tell you. I mean, maybe video games, but I mean, you're talking about, the early to mid eighties. I mean, video games were pretty primitive. You know, I had an Atari 2600 and, and, uh, you know, I would go to the arcade. I go to Chuck E. Cheese with my friends, but right. you know, uh, I don't really know. I think I was just, I don't know what the hell I was doing now that I think about it, <laughs> watching cartoons and playing with toys. Yeah. And that was probably before the, the home market video game crash of, of 1984 too, you know, cause after the, the crash due to Atari kind of oversaturating the market, ColecoVision, all that stuff, then, uh, you know, once Nintendo kind of gained a foothold in the home entertainment market in 1985 in America, then that kind of maybe picked up a little bit more, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, we, we've talked about it before, you know, off the air as well is that, you know, I feel like I've been displaced in time quite a little bit in terms of my thought process, what I like, like I'm a very eighties kid. Like I'm, I'm, I'm 34 years old just for anybody out there who is, isn't aware. And I was born in 1989. So I'd like to say that I'm kind of the last vestige of the eighties personified. Um, but yeah, like, I just feel like I, I just missed out on so much in terms of the, general milieu and and especially with wrestling too like i don't understand hulk hogan and i've, I've told people this i i it, it is i i find hulk hogan to be uh encapsulated in time for the for the style of what it was you know like if you look back it is a little bit tougher for me to try to get into that hype to try to see you know what did what did people really see in this guy but ultimately there are other factors too when it comes to you know maybe not with casual fans but you know his stuff in japan holds up still today and if anybody's doubting on hulk hogan go watch his new japan stuff that's fantastic but it's just yeah I, there's some stuff about wrestling looking back through my lens today that i i still have a little bit of a tough time trying to wrap my head around but uh yeah i'm the same way you know comic books um around the same age i had a cousin that kind of took me to a couple of local stores to get some comic books but i was never really totally into collecting to wanting to go every single week to to try to buy the new issues but you know he he built up a good reference and a good you know framework for me to kind of carry that on into the future so you know that's an interesting point from before because there are certain things and it doesn't i don't think it just goes for wrestling i think it goes for a lot of different things where there, there's there's different categories like w with older wrestling you know there's things that really for some people have that um, you had to be there kind of thing to them. Right. And it sounds like that's what Hogan is for you where, you know, cause I was there. And um, even though the funny thing was when I was a kid and I got into it, I got sick of his shtick about a year into it. When I yeah. started realizing like, Oh, this is what he's going to do in every match. Okay. This is what he's going to do with every opponent and every, and every feud or match is going to end the same way. Uh, I think I've had enough of this after a year, but I mean, for a lot of people, a lot of people didn't feel that way. There was an energy. There was like, uh, you know, it was like people have said, it was like a superhero come to life, but it's almost like in a way what some people from my generation would sometimes say when we would hear about Bruno, Bruno, because absolutely. You'd have people that would go and rediscover the old tapes and things. And they'd be like, well, why is, you know, why is my dad or my older brothers, why are they making a big deal about this guy? He's just like right. punching and kicking and he puts a guy in a bear hug for five minutes. 
And it's sort of like, no, you know what? You had to be there because for the people that were there, this was like, you know, it's still real to me, damn it. <laughs> this was like yeah. a person that was an inspirational figure to them. It wasn't just about the moves and things. So you have stuff like that where it's you had to be there. But then I think, and I think we both have discovered this, you also have the stuff where I think it holds up no matter what. You can, you know, like for me, I can watch Terry Funk stuff from the 70s or promos from the early 80s and things that I had no connection to. And it still holds a, up today. Right. As a fan, it, it was I was not aware. And I watch it now and I'm like, holy crap, not only do I connect to this? I enjoy this better than anything that's on TV now, you know? Ric Flair, you look like Barbara Bush in drag <laughs> with your banana nose. Oh, you know, it's just, that's the thing too, like, you know, rest in peace. And I've said it on Twitter. I've said it, Terry Funk's passing to me is my equivalent of the day the music died. Oh, yes. In all honesty. Like he, to me, was the encapsulation of professional wrestling, whether it be professional wrestling slash sports entertainment. He he was he was the whole total package to me. Like he was he was to me like Ric Flair or Hulk Hogan would be to to other people. Like that was Terry Funk to me. But I'm so glad that you know since his passing, you know so much more video has come out. People are getting more tuned to his older stuff in the '70s. Um, and yeah, it's good to remember and reflect on those who came before us and paved the way. So. And the interesting thing about him is they're never, at least to my experience of it, they're never, as great as he always was, his name was never really brought up in the discussion of so-called greatest of all time until he was done wrestling, until he was right. old. Then you started hearing people say it. It wasn't like somebody like, you know, you'll hear it a lot about flair or you would hear it about michaels when he was fully active or you you know you hear about a lot of different people um austin but you never really heard it about terry funk like i said until recent years where and, and then you, you look at it and you go you know what never really thought of him that way but god yeah i mean i could see that because every as i said when he passed every aspect of what it takes to be a great wrestler every part of the package not only was he good at, but he was better than almost anybody at, you know? Yeah, and he completely exemplified it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, going and going back to, to to kind of your point, just to, to wrap up the Hogan-Bruno thing, I think to me in terms of how you felt maybe about Bruno, maybe just because of age and contextuality, like us, I think maybe from a cultural standpoint too, as we're both Italian, like that could also play a factor too. And when it comes to like, my, that's why I like Bruno is because, you know, he's this, hardy italian boy you know from uh, brutes italy so right right and and i i like to point it out because i don't know it's so funny i i always grew up thinking of myself and i still think of myself as italian as italian american i'm more I'm of a manja cake now but yeah, I, i'm <laughs> i'm half you know i'm i'm half my mother's family sicilian but so i i find as i get more awareness of it or i guess as i take for granted that people know this about me but then i go wait a minute people looking at my name may not know what the hell I'm talking about. So sometimes I have to point that out that, you know, my last name comes from my dad's side of the family. My first name, I don't know what the hell my parents were thinking. I can't explain that. I'm not Irish, but um, you know, I've always thought of myself completely as Italian American because I never really, you know, apologies to my dad if he hears this, but he knows I never had that much of a connection to his family. We never really saw them. There wasn't much of right. a family. 
Whereas my mother had this big, rowdy, crazy Brooklyn, New York, Italian family that essentially raised me, all the aunts, the uncles, my grandparents. So, so yeah, that is the environment I grew up in. And, you know, specifically with regards to somebody like Bruno, and I would even say going back even further, because I grew up around a lot of old people, somebody like Raka. I mean, you would hear the names, and especially when they heard that I was into wrestling as a kid. Yeah. They would talk about Bruno San Martino and they would talk about Antonino Rocca. And so I knew the importance of those people, even though to me, Bruno was the old guy, you know, doing commentary on superstars of wrestling with with Vincent Jesse. But I had this idea of like, wow, these guys were a really big deal to people that I trust and that I listen to who like look at them as, uh, you know, a real as I've said, like Italian-American or kind of hero in the same breath as you talk about somebody like Sinatra or Joe DiMaggio or, you know, in later years, the way, you know, people would look at Stallone or De Niro, like really Bruno and Rocca for an earlier age were in that they were in that category. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, too, like um, kind of bringing it back to like the roots of, of wrestling and stuff, I none of my family members really liked wrestling. <laughs> like I never like, and especially to the, you know, I, I grew up in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, um, you know, AWA territory for years, but you know, in the late two thousands, at least from what I'm seeing, like, and from what I remember, WWF, WWE wasn't going to Winnipeg too much. Um, especially when it comes to house shows, like I don't remember, WWE really kind of gaining a, a footwork in Winnipeg again until maybe like the mid to late 2000s. Like they they did have some tapings in 2004, 2005, but I just remember after that, it was a pretty dark period for like a number of like maybe four years or so for house shows or anything like that, at least for house shows and not necessarily for tapings. But, you know, I, I remember like wrestling memories, my... um I don't want to say my ex uncle, but my my uncle, who's my aunt, is no longer married to. I remember him doing like the Baron von Raschke, like the claw, like that's like that was like a an old memory for me of wrestling. And I'm like, where did that come from? And then I remember seeing the von Erichs do it. I'm like, well, it wouldn't have been that. Where did he get that from? And then I realized about Baron von Raschke, AWA. You know, he would do the claw quite a bit, um, stuff like that. And to me, when I was growing up, you know, especially after the Montreal incident, like Bret Hart was the guy to like for kids like me you know in like 97 98 when i was you know eight or nine years old like i remember bret hart distinctively being the guy and all the kids were constantly talking about like bret hart and Shawn michaels i do remember that and then you know the dx stuff came in and austin 316 shirts are everywhere so it's a different time yeah and it was a different time (laughs) for me especially it's true. I mean, Brett was there were periods of time where you would you would hear about these polls and surveys and things that they would do. And he was know, Canada's Brett, hero. Yeah, he he was like yeah. the premier sports figure of Canada for a little while. Yes, he was. Yeah, um, it's wild. And I mean, he's revered too here in the United States. But I feel like here it's more like it's just among wrestling fans where, where it almost seemed like in Canada he transcended. Yeah, he Absolutely. transcended wrestling more in Canada than I think in the United States. I think a lot of that maybe has to play into his role in the Calgary Hitman in the WHL team when it comes okay. to maybe his ownership. Like I think, you know, hockey in Canada go hand in hand, unfortunately, to some extent. But uh, yeah, I think that also maybe transcribed. And, you know, 
I've talked to other people about, you know, Gene Kaniski, like Canada's icon, Canada's greatest wrestler, you know? So, you know, maybe that could have something to do with it too, but I do know that Brett mainly culturally transcends quite a bit for, for wrestling in Canada. Yeah. That's always a sign of the generational shift. You know, you get most people my age and younger, when you say Canada's greatest athlete, they'll say iron Mike sharp. And, and I will, <laughs> which the, the funny thing is I think that title was more meant to be ironic because right. he, he would call himself Canada's greatest athlete. Right. And then sometimes I will, you know, I, I try not to be that guy, but I will say like, no, listen, Gene Kaniski <laughs> is Canada's greatest athlete, not Iron Mike <laughs> Sharp. No offense to Iron Mike Sharp. Rest in exactly. peace to both of them. Rest in peace. Yep. But, you know, with Winnipeg, it's interesting because I think, um, and again, this is coming from no area of expertise, just from things I've researched and stuff. It could be that it sort of slipped between the cracks a little bit because I know Vince seemed to be very strongly interested, obviously, in Toronto, first and yes. foremost. He was interested in Montreal. Yep. And he was interested in the the Stampede territory very much, I think, because it just covered so much ground. And, it you know, there were a lot of TV contracts you can get in there. So maybe, you know, a, a place like Winnipeg or just the whole province of Manitoba, it might have been uh, less on his radar than other parts of Canada were. Right. And I've seen reports um, years ago from insider sources about how, you know, WWE ranks tiers of towns when it comes to promoting or running. And Winnipeg is always consistently known as a B town. Like it's it's good, but it's not like an A town like, you know, New York City would be or Toronto or Montreal or anything like that. But, you know, Winnipeg did have quite a bit of stuff and and Brandon and the, the surrounding environs in Manitoba in the early 90s, you know, like in 92, there was a lot of stuff. There was an In Your House in 1994, 1995, which was the first appearance of Gold Dust. Um, but yeah, Winnipeg, especially in like the 2000s, like after the Attitude Era, I felt and from what I'm seeing in terms of research that it wasn't really running too much like in the, in the mid to late 2000s. So um, yeah, it could be a weather factor too, you know, especially in the wintertime. Winnipeg is not the best place to be in the world <laughs> with all the snow and cold. Uh, believe me, if anybody doubts that, if people who live in Toronto or people who live in the Northeast try living in Winnipeg for 33 years, you know, you know you'll get used to it. You'll get used to minus 30 wind chill, minus 30 Celsius um, wind chill quite a bit. So it's cold, but we have nowhere yeah. else to go. So <laughs> we have nowhere else to go. So. I tend to think um, I tend to think with Winnipeg, too, that even even in the AWA days, it, right. it seems like it it was sort of secondary, like it was kind of like a satellite of the Midwest U.S. stuff. Like if you look at a lot of times AWA results and things, you will see that a lot of times Winnipeg is like in its own little orbit, like they'll do. Yeah matches or results or like kind of storyline things or whatever in Winnipeg that that they had already done, let's say, in Minneapolis right. or somewhere like they'll redo it for all those people up there who may who may have missed it. Like that's kind of how they how they treated Winnipeg, I think, even yeah, it could have been a little bit of it could have been a little bit maybe of the uh, the TV aspect, too, because there was a specific like Winnipeg feed when it comes mm. to AWA on TSN. So I know that specifically with canadian content you have to have like a certain amount of canadian wrestlers it has to be certain you know aspects of canadian content getting onto the station so you know from what i read and from what i research i know that 
AWA in Winnipeg was its own separate thing to, to a certain extent. And, and you're right about that too. Yeah. I have to be conscious of that too, because you know, my publisher for the two wrestling biographies, the one that I've published the Sheik, and the one I'm working on now, Gorilla Monsoon, they're ECW press and they are Canadian. And so I think, you know, one of the reasons, for example, I think if the Sheik had not been such a phenomenon in Toronto, I don't know if they would have greenlit that book, but thankfully he was. I think that was a big factor in them going, okay, this is going to be relevant to a Canadian readership. And with Gorilla, you know, it's less apparent, but he he achieved his first kind of notoriety in Toronto and in Calgary Stampede territory before coming to the WWF when he was still Gino Morella. So I think that also not that, you know, 99.9% of the people that are going to read this book are not going to know that they're going to, you know, know him from other things. But I think that was sort of like the backdoor reason of why, of how ECW press could be more likely to justify like, okay, this is a good book for us because, you know, he he worked in Canada, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. I'll yeah. I'll take it, you know, whatever yeah. I can. You got it. It's out there now, so you got you you got it. You've you've won the uh, won the battle for now. Yep. Now all I have to do is finish writing it. So I can't. I cannot wait for that book too. Thank you. Way. I'm very excited for it. But you know, I think what what's what I'm hearing too, even in just talking about some of these things of 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 kind of like broadening your your understanding of wrestling and wrestling history, is I've always found that it's so helpful with giving you perspective as a fan. And again, I say this because I always want to make clear, I'm not trying to be pretentious. I'm not going to be one of these, you know, because there are like kind of insufferable people who will. There's a lot of gatekeeping. Yeah. Yes. Sure gate, right. Absol- absolutely. But there are people who will somehow insist that everybody, and it's not just wrestling, that you need to know the history of everything that you're into, you know, no. as much as you can. And here's the thing. That is my nature to do that. I love, you know, I do it with music. Yep, I, I love music. So, you know, I, I will delve into, you know, the, the the far reaches of the history of music and the same thing with movies. I love, you know, movies and things before my time. I love learning about the history of the motion picture industry, but I don't expect everybody to do that. So I want to point that out. I'm not one of these people that, you know, is taking this pretentious view. But I will say that when you do it, you do get a greater perspective on things that sometimes others don't have like the things that this should never bother me, but it never fails to raise the back of my neck is when somebody tries to do one of these greatest of all time lists of this, that, or the other thing. And again, this even goes beyond wrestling, but especially in wrestling or all the Mount Rushmore stuff and the top 10 of this and the top hundred of that. And every time it it usually makes me hit the roof every time, because I'm just going, you know, If you had just reworded this, it's such a simple thing. If you had just said, if you had had the self-awareness to say, I'm not going to do top 10 of all time, because how do I know? Like, I've only been watching wrestling for 20, 30 years, and that's all I know about. So why can't you just say my top 10 favorite or the top 10 of the past 20 years or 30 years or even the top 10 that I have seen or within my you know, lifetime or whatever. When you say all time, you have to realize that unless you really have an understanding of all of it, 
you can't really make that claim. That drives me nuts. Exactly. And, and you know, I think a lot of that stuff, you know, you try to be as objective as possible when it comes to this kind of stuff. But what are the criteria factors? Is it, you know, let's just say from greatest tag teams, is it work rate? Is it drawing ability? Is it the amount of territories that they were on top for? Like cultural impact? Same things that we're talking about today, hopefully with the, you know, things like the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, which I loved your episode with Mike Sempervivi on that. Your two-part your two-part two episode, excuse me. Um, but yeah, like it's just, it, it's tough to put a stamp on those kind of lists. Like, you know, in theory then for greatest managers of all time, why do people not have Bobby Davis on that list? Is it because right. of lack? Is it because of lack of footage? Is it because of not knowing the historical context? Is it because of just general oversight? Is it because they heard him for a couple of times in the mid '80s WWF as an announcer and he wasn't that good? Not an announcer, but like as a commentator. There was that yeah. really bad uh, <laughs> one with uh, Craig DeGeorge. I think that they were doing a um, Fabius Rougeau's match in '87 and. Apparently, it was not very good that it ended up getting retaped by uh, Monsoon and Heenan, I think, like a week later. Yeah. So, you know, like, and that's the thing. It's just like, you know, you would think for greatest managers of all time, okay, you can put Bobby Heenan, you can put Jim Cornette, you can put Jimmy Hart, you know, but why do people not put Bobby Davis on that list? That's the thing. It's just, there's no real, you're never going to get a finite answer. So right, because... you should, you should, you should say... My favorite. It's because it, again, it's tough to be very objective when you don't completely know all the parameters of what's being talked about, right? Right. You can say my favorite. You could say the best yep. I've ever seen. You know, that works because the problem is, um, unless look, like you said with Bobby Davis, the reality is there's certain things that we can't really see today. Yes. Um, it's it's different when you have a sport like baseball you know, which is a legitimate sport and you can go by statistics and numbers. You could look at black and white figures because like we can't really see Ty Cobb and how he played baseball or Honus Wagner, even, you know, before that, but everybody knows that they're two of the greatest. Well, I mean, people who know baseball history know that they're two. I'm not, I'm not a baseball fan, but I, I have heard those. I've yes. have heard those names. Before, Pe yes. People who know baseball and who know the history know that those are two of the greatest players of all time. It's not because I can't sit here and fire up, you know, the 1915 World Series and see. And even if I did, it would look like a flea circus, basically, and be able to really absorb and watch what these guys did. But for something like baseball, I can look at the numbers. I can go, oh, my God, wow, look at how many hits, look how many times, uh, how many home runs, how many games won, how many this, how many that. You can look at that. Now, you can't do that in wrestling. But what you can do still, there is anecdotal evidence out there. Like, that's how anybody knows anything. You can read up on things that happened in wrestling history. You can read up, even if you can't watch it, you can read up on figures of where they wrestled, how many they drew, articles about, you know, how they were viewed in their time period, um, you know, articles in wrestling magazines to give you an idea of how prominent certain people were and how, or even interviews with people where they will talk about those people who may have known them. Now, I'm, again, I'm not saying everybody needs to do this just to make a stupid list, but it is available out there if people do really want to learn, like I have, to inform yourself, to really be able to sit there and go, I feel confident that this really is an all-time list, at least from my point of view, because I've tried to take everything in as much as I can. 
Because so often you look at these lists and you go, okay, clearly this person started watching wrestling in 2002, which is fine. That was a long time ago, but they never had any interest in anything that happened before that or, or, you know, and that's it. And they're happy with that. Like the, the most recent uproar that I saw, and you may have saw this, seen this, the most recent time this happened was that Dax Harwood did his top 10 list of the greatest tag teams of all time. And people, I think I might have missed the origin, but I, I did see people posting it. I didn't know that's where it originated from. So thanks for, for filling me in. On yes. That. But yeah, he, I, I, he I put out it. he put out a list and um, he put Tully was, and Arn on it. Probably didn't he? He did put Tully and Arn. They might have been oh. at the top or close to it. But oh. it, to his credit, though, he also put the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. You know, he didn't which, which are definitely a more important team. But the thing about it was and this is nothing against him. People flipped out over the fact like this was a very big deal to people that he left out the new day the usos and um the dudleys in his top 10 Mm. and i'm sitting there looking at it and i'm going like you know is he wrong (laughs) anybody (laughs) anybody that has watched wrestling before the 21st century or knows about wrestling before the 21st century would also leave out those three teams from a top 10 more often than not um, you know, you could make an argument possibly for honestly any one of those. I, I could see at least an argument, especially I think for the Dudleys. But to be shocked that they're left off the, a list, like if you if you really know wrestling from before, you know, the last 20 years, that's really not that shocking at all. You, you know what I mean? It's like it, yeah. it, it just shows not at all. sometimes the lack of, as I said, historical perspective when your all time just means that the stuff I've seen as a fan, it's not really all time. Right. And I think the big thing too, and and why I mentioned Tully and Arn is I know that a big issue when it comes to voting for the wrestling observer newsletter hall of fame are that, you know, some people make a case for them, but my counterpoint for Arn and Tully and it's specifically Arn and Tully with JJ Dillon Arn and Tully were only a team for like two years, like a year and a half, maybe not even. Right. You know, so it's just like they're a great team. Yeah. But are they really like that high of a ranking or are they just being ranked on their WWF run? You know, like their their JCP stuff was great, too, especially with JJ. But, you know, it's it's two years of work for that kind of all time. So is it worth it? When it comes to the New Day stuff? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, sometimes tribalism can be a little bit. Uh, varied, especially in today's modern climate, and a lot of pearl clutching for sure. Dudley's never got it. I'm not going to lie. Like, you know, the the ECW hype was there maybe when I was still kind of getting into wrestling and maybe learning about wrestling after the, uh, you know, after ECW One Night Stand in 2005 and after the uh, Rise and Fall of ECW documentary that came out. Dudley's, uh, they had the heat, but I think when it comes to the ECW standpoint, like the debate between Public Enemy and the Dudleys, I kind of lean towards Public Enemy now because Public Enemy could work and they were good wrestlers. Dudleys, I just, I never got it, to be right. really honest. They, they had the heat because Bubba could, you know, say stuff to the crowd and kind of inflame the crowd and get people to want to jump the barricade and, and get after him. But, you know, they, nothing special. In all honesty, and I'm not saying that because Bubba Ray has me blocked on Twitter for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Even that's, though I that's never... a badge of honor. That's a badge of honor. Yeah, because yeah. again, I think that's and that's the thing. It's guilt by association for being associated with Arcanian Vanguard and Jim Cornette. Probably. Never interacted with him. Never tweeted him. 
to be blocked an absolute privilege for one of the absolute most overrated wrestlers of all time. So well, thank you. What I'll, <laughs> what I'll say one that well, now you got me on a tangent because Bu- hey, Bubba sucks. Ray, he sucks. Uh, I don't want to say too much, but because I, I worked over there, but let, let me just put it this way and he won't disagree with this. Right. He's not somebody that would ever win a popularity contest. Mongo let's vile. Just let's just yeah. say that. And I know he was one of the people when I was first going into locker rooms or backstage and trying to get interviews for WWE and things. He was definitely one of the more kind of like standoffish, old school, kind of very right. um, um, uh, protective, which isn't the worst thing in the world. Because Rikishi was that way, too, because he was pretty old school. He was somebody that would be like, well... I'm going to ask around about you first before I say anything to you. Like, who the hell are you? That kind of thing. And, you know, I get it. I, I understand. Yep. He, could, he could be a little prickly sometimes, but we're not uh, we're not <laughs> we're not so much talking about his personality right. as as the tag team. And the thing is, like you were saying, it does come back to what criteria are you using? How do you judge yep. this? Like when people will say to me. Well, who's the greatest wrestler of all time? Or who was better, this guy or that guy? And I'm thinking, like, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Like, like who would win in a match? I'm like, what, what kind of a question is that? Even yeah. like, who would win is who was booked to win? Like, anybody could beat anybody. You know, I could beat. And like Mah- we said, like what? Are, yeah, and like we said, what are we talking about? Are we talking about drawing power? Are we talking about right. cultural impact? Are we talking about how long they were on top? Exactly. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no, it's fine because when when you're talking about those three specific teams. Um, Dudley's New Day and Usos, let's say. Now, if you're talking if you're talking about working like the best working, I don't think there's no way any of those teams would make it. However, the thing is where it would sometimes gives me pause, like I said, why it's debatable. If you're looking at it from, you know, one of the criteria is more of a kayfabe criteria where you look at like the titles they won and how long they held them. And and some fans do that. I mean, even though it's a work. I used I used to believe me. And, and that's where is... everybody starts. That's where everybody starts, because, you know, like a lot of stuff like, you know, you, you want to believe it. So you want to think that those kind of things have credence. But when you start learning more from a historical standpoint, when you start learning more about the business that you're in, they don't mean that much. But, right. They don't mean yeah. it, they don't mean the same as what they mean in a competitive sport. However, right. there is another dimension to it, which I like to bring up sometimes, which is um, n- nobody ho- wins a title or holds a title for a long time, especially by accident. Somebody is making a decision to put that title on you and more importantly than that, to keep it on you. So there is something to be said, not that you're you know, you're not really winning it. You're not winning your matches. I'm not delusional and all this stuff, but. Obviously, somebody has confidence in you and they're keeping it on you for a reason, whether it be you're very entertaining, uh, you're, you're a big draw. There's got to be a reason. So, so you know, it. I understand why it carries some weight. And if you look at it from that point of view, I feel like with those three teams, that's really the only reason I could think of to put them on any kind of list because you got the Dudleys who have had like 40 million titles in every major promotion. (laughs) I mean, they have won, I think more tag team titles than any other tag team in so many different places, ring of like everywhere. And with the Usos and and new day, you're talking about like two of the longest reigning. The Usos are the longest reigning tag team champs in WWE history for covering every incarnation of the titles they've had and all this. And I think they also have the record, either they or the new day have the record for the most titles in the company. And again, you know, yeah, I know I sound like a complete Mark for this, but for saying that, but that, you know, it, it is one of the criteria at least 
uh, for the way a lot of people judge these things. But outside of that, I, I I wouldn't see any other reason to put those teams on any kind of a of a top ten list. And if you're talking greatest tag teams ever, um, they would make my list, but it would have to be a pretty long list if they were going to be on it. I'd say if it was a list out of fifty, they'd probably be in the low forties. <laughs> yeah, me, they they would yeah. make a top fifty for me certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Somewhere, yeah. somewhere, yeah, somewhere. But that's the gift of perspective, you know, that that yes. uh, again, like it's not for everybody. That's what we were talking. That's what we were talking about. Yeah, I know we, <laughs> we don't have an attached perspective in history. Yes, I agree. I, I do the same. I, I try not to be obnoxious and unbearable about it, but I'll do the same thing. Like I said, with music or movies, there was somebody who tried to make a claim uh, about music where I think they were talking about Beyonce and they were saying that she this is a fairly credible person on twitter saying that she invented um the the idea of a pop star cultivating their um image like their their almost to an extent of saying like a gimmick or or uh, being being conscious of more than just the music of creating like a visual entity of themselves and i'm just like you know, are you aware of the con of music videos? Uh, did you ever hear of Elvis? I was going to say Madonna. I was going to say in a, in terms of female, I was going to say Madonna. <laughs> right, uh, Michael Jackson. I, yeah, I mean, friggin', Prince. you know, Al Jolson was doing it in the twenties. I, I mean, right. you know, it, it's just such a misinformed <sighs> thing to say, and and I try, I really try. Yeah. To to not let those things bug me. It's those a, things. It's a teachable moment. It's a teachable. Yeah. You know, as, as being in you know the field, it's a teachable moment. And you know, and I I try not to be gatekeeperish. I try not to be snarky. There are some very stupid takes online that I really try to just bite my tongue with. But you know, I I just think of myself. You know, I was in the same boat. I there was at go. a concert recently, and I heard uh, a a younger man. You know, the young man of eighteen or nineteen. And he just seemed like he didn't know what he was talking about for anything. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I like that. And I just, I kind of smiled and laughed because I'm like, I was the exact same way, pal. <laughs> like, you know, like <laughs> you want to say stuff maybe to to try to get in the good graces of people. But ultimately, too, especially when it comes to anything, music, movies, wrestling, you just got to listen. You got to close your mouth, open your ears, and you just got to listen and absorb. And then you can try to formulate your own opinions on that. And you can take away from it what you will. And that's the thing. And that's the beauty. That's what I love about any type of medium, whether it be comics, wrestling, music, or movies. You don't know what you like until you see it. And I'm still trying to figure that out, too. I know what I don't like. And a lot of it has to do with modern wrestling. But I, <laughs> I, know, what I, I know what I don't like. Like, I don't like hardcore stuff. Yeah. You know, EC, ECW had that phase of that mania. And you're like, oh, my God. Like... Sabu and Terry Funk wrestled a match where they had barbed wire instead of ropes. Wow. And then you realize that Sabu cut his bicep and had to tape it up with duct tape to finish the match. Um, so that kind of taints it a little bit. But, you know, like ECW, like I, I was transfixed. I was smoking the hopium, as they say. And then I realized this isn't for me. And this kind of dilutes quite a bit of what wrestling is. And then you see it more and more throughout the years. I don't like intergender wrestling yeah. because I think that kind of takes away on the point of wrestling and more into a sports entertainment aspect but that's for another day um yeah so you know like there's a lot of stuff that i'm still learning to like and there's a lot of stuff that i would love to see more of and the beautiful thing about wrestling too is you know you do have to do some searching uh, like some people are, are really 
cognizant to to help you out if need be but yeah i wish there was maybe a little bit of more of a how-to guide in terms of like where to find footage and like where to to kind of do that stuff but you know that's it's been like that for a long time i used to you know when people would download stuff back in the day but neither here nor there from a legality standpoint <laughs> um but you know there there are certain google drives out there that have a lot of wrestling on it and it's just so much fun to look in a folder and be like okay i'm gonna watch some 83 kansas city and see where that takes me right so it's just i'm I'm still trying to find stuff that i and then you then you find out in 83 kansas city masahiro chono was in kansas city in 83 84 and you see him doing these hair spots with the ref and and all these noise spots when it comes to somebody clapping behind his head and getting disorientated so it's just it's it's, it's fascinating to kind of see and be like oh my god like that's really cool and then you kind of see the trajectory of their career you see other people you see random quote unquote wrestle crap stuff that looks so bad that it couldn't even be focused on in a normal standpoint or couldn't even be taken seriously so it's just you know i'm still finding what i like and i'm still trying to find out you know what works for me as a wrestling fan too and, and I, i'm sure I, I, we might have talked about it before but were you ever into tape trading or was tape trading a little bit over by the time you kind of got into it no i was into it i was into it for a few different things you know i as people know i i did my book about godzilla godzilla faq and right. in the 90s i was hunting down for people my age it's actually even referenced in the kevin smith movie mall rats which i thought was amazing but there was a whole underground kind of uh, movement of Godzilla bootlegs because at oh. a certain point, yeah, at a certain point in the late 80s, they stopped releasing pretty much the Godzilla movies domestically. They were only coming out in Japan. Right. And so in order to get them, we had to get these bootlegs. And I remember there was like a Chinese convenience store. Don't don't ask me why a Chinese store had <laughs> Japanese tapes, but there was a Chinese convenience store near where I went to college, Brooklyn College. And I would go down there and he had Godzilla bootlegs in the back. They were they weren't even they were just in Japanese. And sometimes they had English subtitles. Sometimes they didn't. You just have to figure it out. But yeah, but I did the same thing with wrestling. You know, when I I've talked to John McAdam about it and I've had him right. on here and I've been on his show. But, you know, he gets very modest when I say this, but he was a very big deal in the tape trading world. I mean, God, Tony Khan even mentioned him in one of the. Yep press conferences recently how he was Absolutely. getting tapes from him and yeah i mean he had this website and i don't know if it still exists probably not he had just i mean mind-blowing for the time you know in the in the 90s i'm there buying like msg cards from the 70s or like right. andy kaufman in memphis and it's blowing my mind because i knew very little about it so yeah i mean tape trading i was most definitely into it yes Absolutely. And I've heard a lot of stuff about John's listings. Like apparently John's listings were also really good and seen as kind of like, a, you know, a big um, you know, source of entertainment and a lot of insight for a lot of tape traders, too, when it comes to his website. So, yeah. And I think if I remember right, because it's been a while, I think he would even include sometimes like the star ratings for the matches. On I think I've seen tapes. that. Yeah, I think I've seen yeah. pictures of that. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually reminds me of something because the cool, you know, it's like a double edged sword because I think today, like you talk about those Google drives and things and you can jump on YouTube and God, I mean, we even have Peacock and other things like that. There's so it's so much easier to inform yourself or to watch stuff, older stuff and learn about why people were special or well regarded. Like it's a lot easier to do now. And the the 
the plus side of that is I do see a lot more conversations online from younger people about wrestling history and things that were, you know, expanding their knowledge. A lot of that does go on people talking about the territories who certainly don't remember the territories, but they're learning about it because of the way the media landscape is today. But I think sometimes the flip side of that is like, for example, um, a big source of that history is comes from newsletters, right? It's how a lot of us learned about it. But I've always felt like I don't know if the newsletters or the dirt sheets, whatever you want to call them, I don't know if they were ever really intended for a wide readership of just average everyday wrestling fans. You know what I mean? Because that's not how it was back then. It was you were either in the industry or you were a really smart fan. You were somebody that was really into it and really kind of delving into the behind the scenes. Whereas now with social media, you don't even need to be a subscriber. You're getting all the dirt. You're getting all the stuff that trickles down from the newsletters. And we see all the time there's like all these backlashes against, you know, Dave Meltzer or or Wade Keller or other people that right. do them. Right. And some of it, some of it valid and some of it being like, well, I don't know if this is really meant for you. You know what I mean? Like not to sound again pretentious, but right. I feel like if you just want to be a fan who doesn't want to have anything spoiled or who doesn't care about history or doesn't care about ratings or the business side of things or, you know, doesn't want to have the surprises revealed. Well, I don't know if wrestling Twitter is for you, for example, like maybe you should just delete your social media because we live in a time where you can't escape it now. There's a lot of subsects of wrestling Twitter, though, too. I'm I'm pretty much still on a lot of surface stuff, but there is a lot of wrestling Twitter nuances and crazy takes that go on that I'm just kind of like, Oh my gosh. Like, but you know, and, and bringing back to the newsletter aspect and the thing too, you know, obviously I, I didn't grow up with the newsletters. Like I said, like I didn't even think that the observer came to Canada or you could get a subscription to Canada to the newsletter, but there were people in Winnipeg that did have newsletter subscriptions because looking back at the old uh, observers, there, there were, you know, readers pages, people from, from Canada and from Winnipeg. Um, not to get on a tangent about people's credibilities and, and everything like that, because that's not our, that's not my place. And that's not our place in terms of what we're talking about today. But when I look back at the old observers and torches, you know, they're meant to be a loose guideline about what is seen as, um, kind of what to look at. Like I'm I'm not taking it as gospel truth. I'm not taking it as gospel fact. Like you said, it's this is wrestling fandom. It's meant for a not necessarily widespread audience. It's to show what is good and what is not and then you can kind of be deciding. Like do I get mad at people if they don't say that Flair versus Steamboat at WrestleWar 89 is a five-star match? No, because people's tastes vary. And it's not the be-all, end-all absolute truth that that is a five-star match. If you know what I'm saying? like, And, and that's the thing. We, we don't want to get too much into it. But when I look back at old stuff, I, I take Dave's opinion as uh, not as complete truths, but I take it as an opinion. Right? Does that make sense right. a little bit? Absolutely. It, yeah. And that's sometimes what I say when – because I think that there is certain value to be gained from it. As I've said before – the problem is not that there is a Dave Meltzer. The problem is 
that there should be like 10 Dave Meltzers. You know what I mean? Who all have their own views and opinions. And It's not the uh, be-all, end-all opinion. Right, and who are all on an equal level and that kind of thing. And, you know, it's just not like that. So it causes everything to be focused on this one person. Uh, And it's sort of like some of it comes from a place of, I think, not really understanding what the function of the newsletter is. I think... 90 plus percent of the people that uh, will criticize him, you know, and and Jim being in the other 10 percent, obviously, but but Jim Cornette, but 90 percent have never picked up a copy of the Wrestling Observer in their life. And probably some of them don't even know that it's a real thing, that it's a newsletter. They just think he's this old guy on Twitter who spouts off his opinions about wrestling and you know gets angry and go, gets in the replies with people probably more right. than his than is good for his or anyone's mental health but especially when it comes to people who have known Dave for a really long time that yes. say that's that Dave shouldn't be doing that and that's not really you know who he is really and i think he's just doing it for other reasons but we're not going to get into that so <laughs> i'll leave that lie but i wanted to bring that up when it comes to the conversation too no, no, that's fine because because I, I do think that's an important part of it. You you can't ever forget that because sometimes I'll forget it. You know, because I've been reading the Observer for twenty four years since I started working at WWE, right. and and um, sometimes you forget that for all these people who are young and who are on you know social media is their life and they don't re- remember a time before it. Um, this is the only. Dave Meltzer they know or or you could say that about anybody who's sort of like a wrestling pundit all they know is the social media part and you know he'll re- he'll reveal something or and this is this goes for all of them not not just him um they'll reveal something and people will go nuts like oh my god I didn't want to know that and and now you've spoiled the show for me or you know why are you always taking this person's side or that person's side and it's, well, first of all, part of the function of what they do is to report on things, you know, yes. <laughs> that's sort of what their role is. And the, but the other part of it is um, this, I don't know if it's, it, it's all across the board media literacy, because I've taught journalism at a high school level. And I think people sometimes don't understand that opinion is a valid component of journalism in general, as long as it's clear that it's opinion, you know, yes, and, and that everybody as long as, has... all, as long as it's not be all and all objectivism, R- absolutely right, right, and everybody has opinions of things that color what they do or write. Like I, you know, when I had the um, uh, Abraham Josephine Reisman, the the biographer of Vince McMahon, recently on the show, and we talked right. about it how. This isn't to say one way or the other, whether I think it's a good book or not or whatever, but how so much of the criticism came because the author was giving an opinion or there was a viewpoint on Vince McMahon's life that wasn't 100 percent impartial in every way. And and I think that comes from a lack of understanding of of how biographies are written. You, you know what I mean? Like you right. you can't. Everything you write to a certain degree is going unless it's just hard news, right, is going to be colored by your own view on things. It, it's just right the because way, it's your because it's partially yeah. your voice writing the narrative in terms of in terms of getting that out there. Absolutely, but there has to be checks and balances with that too. And yeah, that's naturally. And 
yeah, gotta love it, you know. And I'll say on the other side of it too, um, I, I agree sometimes when you see how much because everything is dominated, let's say, by a small number of opinions, there has been a sense over the years and the decades of um let's say certain tastes of what makes good wrestling become like written in stone or gospel, right. you know, truth. Like I'm facing that now writing my Gorilla Monsoon book because, and I said this to Mike Sempervivi when we did our show, but when you talk to people today, it's an unquestionable truth that Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon were one of, if not the greatest announced teams ever, certainly one of certainly one of the most entertaining, certainly hilarious, but back and, and Gorilla Monsoon himself is looked on so fondly by people who remember him as like the voice of their early wrestling fandom in their childhood. But at the time, you know, he was trashed in the newsletters yes, in those regularly. Letters, absolutely. Yep. It was and Dusty Rhodes, same thing. Dusty Rhodes, yep. de- deified then, yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. But back then was among the smarter fans was kind of a joke or unbearable or whatever you want to say. And, and, but sometimes those views become like codified where it's like, okay, this is the, this is the way we have to think. And, and that I don't always agree with for that reason, because things could get reappraised. Like what makes a good match? You know what I mean? Like there could, absolutely. There, there are could still be... people that think about yeah, and and sorry, there there still are no. people that think about the the dusty thing today about how you you talk about even you know there's been discussions on it online about Dustin Rhodes in in 1991 in WCW, and how people in the newsletters were trashing him because he was Dusty's son, and they were so worried because Dusty was coming back as Booker from the WWF, they were so worried that oh it's just going to be like how he killed uh, Crockett in '88. And they never gave it a chance. And there are some people still today that I have talked to that are newsletter aficionados into the newsletter scene that still have the anti-dusty seg- uh, sentiment. Yes. And it just, it it's it, it kind of boggles my mind, to be really honest. Yeah, you know, Dusty did have his low moments for sure. But I think that, you know, time does heal some type of wounds. But I think that it's up to you whether you or not you want it to heal, really. Yes, yes. And there are things that I think it's okay to question. Um, I put this on Twitter, and I know you may not agree with me because of the whole Hogan thing, but when I went and rewatched WrestleMania three for, again, for research, and I came away from it going like, I don't care what anybody says. Um, yes, Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat was awesome and exciting and all the three, you know, the the near falls. And you could tell it was such a well put together match. But Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant is also the a, show. it's a great match. Not only did it sell the show, but it's 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 very compelling to watch. Hogan is is at least for Hogan standards. He's bumping his ass off. He's working yeah. hard to make Andre look good. Andre, who could barely move. And, and the match felt epic. It felt big. Like, for example, and then if you jump to their WrestleMania 4 match, yeah, that's a terrible match. I get it. But at WrestleMania 3, man, I mean, they they really did something special there. It was but a moment you, in time. Absolutely. But if you only go by the newsletter view of things, it's a dud, right? And it's every match. five-star match. Right, yeah. negative five stars. And everything, like the old joke goes, everything that takes place in the Tokyo Dome you know, is 12 and a half stars. But I think that that mentality has 
does trickle down a lot and people take it as received wisdom rather than going, no, this is just opinion. You know, this is just yeah, somebody's people, and, that, and that's the thing too with, with, with Dave too, is that some people take it as gospel truth and you, you can't live like that and you can't have that type of viewpoint. It's all subjective because, you know, Dave is such a trusted source, but watch it for yourself. When I was on McAdams show about a year and a bit ago, we were watching um, one of the Clash of Champions events, and I think it was Clash of Champions 15, uh, was the first uh, appearance of Dusty back in WCW in 1991. And, you know, like I was looking at some of the, you know, observer write-ups for the match, but I wasn't letting it completely influence it for me. And I remember the theory, and especially when it comes to the event itself, is the main event was Ric Flair versus uh, Scott Steiner. And I remember how a lot of people wanted this to be the match. But I watched it, and I thought, you know, like, it wasn't that good of a match because, you know, maybe something happened. Maybe it was just a mix-up of styles. And, yeah, it just, you know, it, opinions change, but you have to have some element in terms of you know what makes this a good match or a bad match but you also have to have your thoughts on it too because you know there are maybe some things that you don't like that other people say yeah it's the best ever but you know you have to say at the end of the day do i like this because somebody else is telling me that it's good or do i like this because i genuinely like it right absolutely and and it can really color it can color your own opinions if you're not careful it could make um you, someone else's opinions automatically your opinions and it's okay to agree with people but you have to kind of judge it for yourself also to a certain degree and uh, you know it could make all the difference in the world like you were saying about the flair and steiner match sometimes you just will something to be better than it is right. a, a more recent example for me i think now it's maybe like about four or five years ago but you know, at WrestleMania, they had AJ Styles versus Shinsuke Nakamura. And everybody's right. going like, oh, my God, this is going to be the greatest match in WrestleMania history. The two of the greatest workers of like the last 20 years. This is going to steal the sh You know, it wasn't even the best match on the show, you know, yeah. let alone the best match in WrestleMania. And I remember hearing the story of them coming back through Gorilla and even Vince being like, that was it. Like, I I, I was expecting. Oh, okay. I yeah, no, there was. Actually. Yeah, there was a story of, you know, because Vince, who may have been skeptical on both, certainly Nakamura, but was being told things by people to, to that same effect. His reaction supposedly was like, um, OK, I was definitely from what I had heard, expecting a lot more from that. You know, there was that. Kind, I think he had the same reaction with um, Kevin Owens and Chris Jericho when they I think it was them when they had their match. Uh, that, you know, everybody was kind of raving was going to steal the show and it didn't steal the show, that kind of thing, you know, and, and that's when you start to realize how much of it is subjective. I think that comes with yeah. maturity as a fan. Like I, yep, absolutely. I always considered, you know, I'll always have these knee jerk responses from when I was younger, like you mentioned flair and steamboat and for fans of a certain age, namely my age, if you say, that it's it's like a knee jerk response. Oh my god, greatest match of all time. Yes. Uh the only the only thing you can debate is which one of the three was the greatest of all time. You know, right. the, the the clash of the champions, the wrestle war, or the uh Chitown, you know, Chitown Rumble. Rumble. That's the only thing that's debatable. But then, you know, as I get older, I go, Yes, great match. Um, is it indisputably the greatest of all time? No, definitely yeah. not. I don't even know if it was the greatest match 
that either of those guys had. I think I think this that even that's debatable, but certainly a great match. But I think that's that's good. That's good. Broadening your mind is good. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I, I'm still trying to do it every single day. So I urge people, and, and that's kind of the reason why I, I want to be a little more active when it comes to my social media is that, you know, I, I want to be able to talk about this with people. I want to be able to learn. I want to be able to talk to people who were either there or people who were in the newsletter scene. Like, I, I'm trying to put up more stuff for engagement, but don't be afraid to to message or to tweet me back because of maybe not knowing me or maybe like I said, by association, there was a funny exchange that I had about a year ago with, with, uh, somebody in the quote unquote internet wrestling community, I guess like a, you know, like the smart fans, you know, fan guy. And I genuinely put, I'm like, it was this guy like in the business? Was he just like, where did he come from? And I didn't get completely dogged, but it was the most uh, interaction I think I've ever had on a tweet from other people like joking. I remember, I think uh, your friend Kevin McIlvaney, I think, chimed in and just, you know, just like joking and stuff like that. And it was all in good fun. And I loved it. But, you know, you don't know until you know. And like, I genuinely was not trying to step on anybody's toes, but I was just like, who is this guy? Like, is, like, what's his what's his status? What's his what's his deal, man? And I loved it ultimately in the end because it was pretty civil. So, yeah, I just want to have stuff like that. I want to have those type of interactions with people. So people, don't be afraid to tweet. And the reason why is because I followed the guy after and uh, he said that he was trepidatious because of my association with, with Jim and Brian. And I said, okay, well, I don't think you can think like that because not everybody that, you know, either works for or is a fan of Jim and Brian's show automatically thinks like Jim and Brian, especially with Jim and how polarizing Jim can be. And, you know, and I'm, that, my own, I'm my own, I'm my own person. I don't, I think that's really, you know, it was kind of unfair to lump me in, but I wasn't taking offense to it. I just said, no, like I'm, I'm my own man. I think I'm a, I'm a pretty cool guy. And I had a couple of people vouch for me in, uh, in the Twitter mentions. So. Well, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. Cause I know we, I know we want to wrap up in a minute, but I do, right. you know, on, on that, first of all, I've said this to you, but you are the only person on Twitter with uh, an anime or manga avatar whom I don't immediately regard with suspicion. <laughs> right out of <laughs> well, you are you. the only one. Usually, when I see those, I'm like, "Oh boy, we're in oh, trouble boy. now." And I had a bunch of and I had a bunch of numbers at the end of my name too. Right, you you're the only one. But see, but that's why it's so important to not, like you said, do not make assumptions. We have so much tribalism in wrestling fandom now it's like especially now and and also you gotta have a thicker skin so much of what goes on is caused by people who just can't take criticism or kidding around or just kind of uh, uh frank talk like i'll say you know since we're talking about arcadian vanguard and jim and everything like i think it's great that we have a Jim Cornette out there. I think it's great that we have a Dave Meltzer out there, you know, even, even though they don't agree on anything these days and, and, you know, they'll be at each other's throats online. I think we need that though. That's what I was talking about before. You need vocal differing opinions. So it's not just right. lock and file lockstep. This is what we think about everything. You need more of that. You need more diverse opinions and people who are passionate about defending them and can take the heat that aren't just gonna you, you know what i mean like that that's all yeah. that all is is what 
will hopefully go into if this situation ever improves it'll be because of that of people understanding those things you know and i have to take credence with your words too because and from my own volition normally in the past i have been pretty thin-skinned in my (laughs) previous life but growing older and with maturity i i I do know to kind of take a joke and kind of let it roll off my back so yeah but i completely agree with your sentiments when it comes to uh people like jim and people like uh, dave Meltzer and their place in the general milieu and and social mores of uh of wrestling twitterverse and just wrestling in general I'm glad we agree, Jace. Now I don't have to tear you down on Twitter. That'll be appreciate. That Thank would be you. unfortunate. Yeah, you can, but, you can uh, tear me out. You can you can chew me out in our uh, private message afterwards after the recording <laughs> ends. Well, I I can't thank you enough for doing this and and taking time out. I know for a fact that you are an extremely busy man going through. What are, I think Jim and Brian are up to about uh, what like forty seven hours of content a week that you've got to go through something like yeah, that. Yeah, about fifty. About fifty. Yeah, so. You're right. I'm very grateful. I know that it takes an effort to make the time. So thank you so much. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Jace Nakarado. Jace, thank you so much for making your way out of the editing booth this week and coming front and center to talk wrestling with me here on Shut Up and Wrestle. And I hope that all of you enjoyed that, and I hope you're going to keep listening to the show. As I've said at the top, if you missed it, I'm going to say it again. Next week, 100th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle with my very special guest, Jim Cornette. You are not going to want to miss that one. And beyond 100, we go into the next set of 100 Shut Up and Wrestle episodes with other great guests on the way. We've got Steve Generelli, frequent co-host of the Stick to Wrestling podcast with John McAdam. I've also got other interviews in the works with Lucha Libre historian Roy Lucier, as well as John Finkel, the author of the upcoming Randy Savage biography, as well as another great wrestling historian and writer, Steve Johnson. Got some other ones in the works that I don't even want to mention yet until I'm sure that they are solid and written in stone. But I will keep you posted. Keep listening to this show. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Podcast Addict. There's also our website, suawpod.com. Also, feel free to join the Facebook group as well, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. I'm always adding additional content there. Very recently, I added an exclusive historical photo of Antonino Rocca that was taken by the father of my guest, Steve Dworkin, from a couple of weeks back when he was a little kid at a show in Long Island in 1960. That kind of stuff you will find in the Facebook group if you join it. And if you want to provide a small financial contribution to the show, if you want to show how much you love Shut Up and Wrestle, You can do so via Venmo or Cash App from my Twitter profile page, Brian R. Solomon. There's a contribution button there. And if you want to use PayPal, you can find me at Solomon at yahoo.com. Nothing required. Just if you want to show your appreciation and your support for the show, feel free to do it. Otherwise, keep listening. Have a great time. Keep doing what you do. If you're interested in some other projects that I work on, 
there are many of them. There's the Wrestling News at thewrestlingnews.com and on the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. It is your daily morning report on the world of professional wrestling from the Arcadian Vanguard team. The books that I have written, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. Or, even newer than that, Superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. Find them wherever books are sold. If you're interested in a signed copy, reach out to me, as some have done, at Solomon at yahoo.com. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Find it at pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes magazine, you will find at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can find my author page on Facebook. It's Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author webpage on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that we laugh because it's funny, but we also laugh because it's true. So long, wrestling fans. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh. For the fields we go, laughing all the way. Bells on rock they ring, making spirits bright. What fun it is to ride and sing a sleigh song tonight. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. A day or two ago, I thought I'd take a ride, and soon Miss Fanny Bright was seated by my side. The horse was lean and lank, misfortune seemed his lot. He got into a drift and bank, and we, we got upset. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh.